The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You have a lot of members in the House who would like to have this big called an impeachment inquiry for reasons that don't have a lot to do with anything other than the PR of it. And there's a reluctance on the part or an inability on the part of the leadership to get the full House to vote for that. I'm Quinta Dresick, a senior editor at Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 3rd, 2023. If you've been following the news out of Congress recently, you've probably been focusing on the narrowly averted government shutdown or the indictment of Democratic Senator Bob Menendez, and perhaps the House Republicans' decision to begin an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. But there have also been some notable updates when it comes to the continuing fallout from January 6th. Recently, The U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit unsealed an opinion limiting the ability of the special counsel's office to access phone records from Representative Scott Perry under the speech and debate clause. Meanwhile, Trump's one-time advisor, Peter Navarro, was finally convicted of contempt of Congress for defying the January 6th committee. Along with my fellow Lawfare senior editor, Molly Reynolds, I sat down with two of our favorite guests to call when there's news about Congress and the law. Mike Stern, the former senior counsel to the House of Representatives, and Eric Columbus, who recently served as special litigation counsel in the House Office of General Counsel. We discussed Perry, Navarro, how exactly one should define an impeachment inquiry, and of course, the Menendez indictment. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 3rd, checking in on Congress. So we have a long list of topics to go through from uh, Representative Scott Perry's cell phone to the Peter Navarro contempt prosecution to what exactly impeachment means. Let's start with Scott Perry. So the litigation over uh, Representative Perry's cell phone has traveled a long and winding road. Um, And recently, the D.C. Circuit unsealed a ruling that rolls back in part a previous district court opinion that would have allowed investigators to access the phone's contents. Um, And I do want to make sure we talk about the specifics of both of those rulings. But before we do, Mike, you've been following this case closely how did we get here? Um, why was it that law enforcement was so interested in Perry's phone? And on what grounds has Perry been challenging that search? So the uh, law enforcement, the special counsel's office, 
has been interested in the uh, contents of Perry's cell phone, I think largely because of his role in, I, I suspect, I don't really know this for a fact, but I, I suspect a large part of it has to do with his role in communications with the White House regarding the role of the Justice Department in January 6th, specifically installing Jeff Clark as the Attorney General, if you recall all of the uh, the uh, events surrounding that, where the where Clark was introduced to the president by Perry, apparently, and then Clark was going to uh, try to get the Justice Department involved in sending a letter to Georgia to ask them to uh, call a special session of the legislature in order to look into allegations of fraud, uh, which, according to this letter that he wrote, they drafted, the Justice Department had found evidence of, of fraud that required these extraordinary actions. Again, as you may recall, the uh, his superiors at the Clark superiors at the Justice Department uh, were very opposed to that. And there was a huge meeting at the White House in which Trump was on the cusp of installing Clark as the new acting attorney general, but eventually decided against it because everyone else in the Justice Department threatened to resign. Uh, so I think that's a large part. Perry's role in instigating that, I think, is a large part of why they are particularly interested in him. But they got a warrant for his cell phone and they seized it and they want to get access to be able to look at a whole bunch of text messages on that cell phone. The Perry's uh, argument is that they are prohibited from doing that by the speech or debate clause of the Constitution, which uh, protects members of Congress from certain types of questioning outside of the uh, of the legislature. Uh, and the question is, the legal question in the case is, which of these communications, if any, fall within the scope of the speech or debate clause? The district court, uh, Chief Judge Howell, found that uh, only a very small subset of the communications were protected in, in her view, those that involved his communications with other members specifically regarding legislative matters. In contrast, she found that all of his communications outside of Congress with private individuals or state legislators or anything of that nature, even though they may have re uh, related to the um, January 6th and the question of whether electoral votes should be certified, uh, she found those were unprotected. Perry claimed that they constituted informal fact-finding. And in Judge Howell's view, uh, informal fact-finding, unless it is authorized in some way by the House itself, for example, if Perry had been on a committee that was conducting an investigation or had oversight over a particular issue, that might be protected. But just on his own, trying to get facts was not something in, in uh, Judge Howell's mind that was protected. However, the D.C. Circuit took a slightly different view, and exactly what that view is is somewhat unclear, but uh, they remanded the case to her to look at, again at these communications with this different standard, which is a little hard to explain, but we can get into that as we discuss it. 
So, Mike, you um, were just sort of outlining for us the ways in which this case um, ultimately hinges on uh, interpretations of the speech and debate clause. And I'm curious to hear both of your thoughts. And Eric, maybe I'll start with you. Um, kind of how does the um, how does the ruling in this case um, fit in with previous rulings by um, by courts on the speech and debate clause? Is it consistent with where um, courts have generally been? Um, does it go in a different direction at all? That sort of thing. Both the district court and the Court of Appeals uh, cited extensively to uh, cases by the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court in support of their uh, basically opposite conclusions. Uh, and I have not gone back and and looked at you know, line by line the cite the the citations to see who has the better case uh, from precedent. But I think it's fair to say that it's probably somewhat uncharted waters, and you could kind of come out either way uh, in that regard. One interesting thing here actually is is that the, the Typical partisan lines are a little bit scrambled. Uh, we have a Republican congressman, obviously, and he and Judge Howell, the district court, who is a, an appointee of President Obama, ruled against him. Uh, and then a, a three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit, all consisting of Trump and uh, Bush appointees, uh, ruled in his favor. So that, you might say, is, is completely quote unquote normal. However, the House moved to intervene in the case in at the Court of Appeals level. And that in recent years is something that is has been can be done on a partisan basis with just the majority party authorizing intervention. But in this case it was reported that the Democratic leadership also agreed uh, to intervene. Even though there, it didn't really matter whether they did or not. So this shows that the House believes that it's in its institutional interest to protect Representative Perry here and to protect the ability to conduct uh, informal fact fighting within and be protected by the speech or debate clause. Now we the the briefs are sealed, so we don't know precisely what the House what position the House took, whether it was the same as Representative Perry's. But I think it's fair to say that they would not have gotten involved if they were satisfied with what Judge Howell had done. Mike, do you have thoughts on sort of how this ruling fits into um, the broader jurisprudence on the speech today clause? Uh, yeah, I so I agree with Eric that this is basically, th- these are open questions and like good lawyers, they marshal the language in the cases that support the position that they want to, they want to reach. The question so there, there's one jurisprudential issue which is unique to the D.C. Circuit, which is that the D.C. Circuit recognizes a non what what is just called a non-disclosure aspect of speech or debate. In other jurisdictions, it is unclear whether if you're seeking documents that you necessarily can assert speech or debate simply to protect the contents of of documents because it is it is viewed as not necessarily protecting the contents of documents as opposed to the questioning aspect of it so for example if it's a search warrant or seizing a cell phone 
arguably it might not be protected at all in other jurisdictions. And that's kind of an open issue that's uh, specific to the D.C. Circuit. But uh, in terms of whether informal fact-finding is protected, that's kind of an issue that is, there's a little bit of precedent on on saying that it is protected, but there's not really much at a appellate court level. And so it's really kind of an open issue. Judge Howell thought it shouldn't be protected at all in unless it was, again, part of a, some sort of formal connection to a House investigation. The D.C. Circuit appears to disagree, but they don't actually explain exactly. Judge Katzis, in a concurrence, kind of gives a hint as to what he thinks should be protected, and the majority says, maybe that's right, maybe it's wrong, we don't need to decide that. (laughs) So it's very unclear exactly what Judge Howell is supposed to do on remand, in in my view, but she's Apparently, she's supposed to go through every one of his texts, you know, sort of text by text and make a judgment on whether or not it falls within the legislative sphere, which is sort of a broadly defined concept. And I don't think the courts, maybe Eric has a better idea, but I didn't read the court as giving much guidance on how she should decide whether it falls within the legislative sphere or not. Yeah, I, I agree with Mike on that. And, and Judge Howell actually kind of noted that anticipatorily in her opinion, where she said that it would, it would be, uh, she was actually, actually quoting uh, Judge Kavanaugh in a, in a, on a, from a different speech or debate clause case relating to a different issue. Uh, she wrote that it would be unwise in principle and unworkable in practice. To uh, have a, a a rule that is similar to what the the court of appeals did, uh, and she noted that in the in when Lindsey Graham challenged the Fulton County District Attorney's efforts to compel him to testify about his communications with the Georgia Secretary of State, uh, the district court wound up engaging in what Judge Howell called painstaking parsing of, of what questions he could or could not be asked. Uh, so I would imagine that Judge Howell's blood pressure rose considerably when reading the the Court of Appeals opinions for precisely the reasons that that Mike noted and that she herself had 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 warned about, that it's going to be very annoying for her to kind of go back and read through each of the texts and determine whether each specific text constituted a quote-unquote legislative act as the Supreme Court has interpreted that term. So when the appeals panel was unveiled, I imagine that a lot of lawyers on the government side might have been wincing. Um, So the the panel was made up of uh, Judge Henderson, Judge Rao, and Judge Katsas, which is certainly uh, a typically conservative panel for the D.C. Circuit. Two of those judges, uh, Rao and Katsas, are Trump appointees. I think there's reason to wonder, certainly, whether they might have been perhaps less sympathetic to the January 6th investigation. And Rao, in particular, has been a bit of a bomb thrower when it comes to investigations. We can talk about uh, her her previous rulings when it came to uh, the impeachment questions. Um, so I definitely, you know, went into this opinion thinking, 
okay, this might be a bit of a wild read. And I have to say, I, I think I, I sent Molly a message while I was reading it saying that I, I found it uh, disappointingly reasonable. Um, <laughs> that it, it seemed, you know, at least in tone, it they're, you know, they're walking through all the concerns. Uh, they're sort of presenting themselves as trying to map a middle path between Perry's approach under which everything would be protected and the government's approach and the district court's approach, which rules that very little is protected. So I'm curious what you both think of of the sort of dynamics there um, and whether, you know, you think the DC circuit got the answer right. Is it actually reasonable or is it just kind of posturing reasonableness? Mike, let me start with you. So I think it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, I had a couple of reactions to Judge Rao's opinion. First of all, it seemed very unlike many of her other opinions, which are sort of extremely originalist and even more than originalist, they're sort of original with her. <laughs> they're her own takes on on issues. And this one, in, in contrast, sort of walked through the, it basically just had a long description of what the cases said and then said, well, that's what they say, so go and go and do likewise without actually and so the problem I had with with the opinion was it didn't really explain how exactly you were supposed to apply these in the particular case. I didn't think it was necessarily unreasonable. Uh, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that some informal fact finding is protected and some may not be. But I'd like to hear some guidance on how you figure out how you tell the difference. But I think that the in terms of the impact of the opinion. My guess is that from the special counsel's sort of short-term view, it's probably fine because I think it allows them to get what they are most likely most interested in, which is the communications with the executive branch. As I read the opinion, although there wasn't a lot specific about that, it seems like the court agrees with Judge Howell that those communications are not protected. And I think that's what the special counsel is most interested in. The problem that I think that the Justice Department more broadly may have is, you know, how is this going to play in other cases? Every time we try to get information related to a member of Congress, are we now going to have to ask the court to conduct a, you know, a text by text or a communication by communication uh, review, which we're not sure exactly how it is supposed to work? That could I think be a problem for future Justice Department investigations, and I, I would imagine maybe they're discussing whether they want to try to take this on bank for that reason more than any particular relationship to this particular investigation. That was my reaction. Jumping off from that, I, I think it's, inter- it's an interesting question, and in, in in some ways, this is perhaps an easier application of the principle that the DC Circuit. Uh, tried to articulate, because it's very clear in this case that Representative Perry was had an upcoming vote that was probably weeks away on, on January 6th to determine whether electoral votes uh, should be counted, or rather, I should say, it, there wasn't necessarily going to be a vote. If there was an objection from one member of the House and one member of the Senate to a state's vote, then the parties would, the, the, these houses would separate and, and debate and vote. 
So it was a fair probability that he was going to vote on on something on that day relating to the election. But what happens if, I mean, obviously members of Congress vote on everything all the time. So he could, a member of Congress could be, you know, asking questions about, or a member of Congress could retroactively claim that text communications were in the service of gathering information about some possible legislative issue that would come up in the future. And how concrete does the upcoming vote have to be? Does there have to be something basically scheduled in the way that January 6th was scheduled? Or can a member of of Congress uh, just claim that he thought that at some point there would be a vote on on this topic in the next in the remainder of his term it's it, it's a little bit like the the question of of when is a congressional investigation authorized and the typical rule is uh that congress can investigate any anything on which legislation can be had and that basically covers just about everything and even if their their actual intent is to uh, embarrass or show up or shine shine a light on a certain issue, and so you you wonder here whether this becomes such an easy test for a member to to pass by claiming that oh I this there could be legislation on this topic and I was just gathering information about it. Yeah. Or or take something that happens all the time, which is members having discussions with lobbyists or interest groups that that want to talk to them about upcoming legislation or potential legislation or what what have you. This rule would presumably make all of those conversations potentially privileged, but I'm not quite sure how one decides whether they're privileged or not. Um, so basically. It it opens up a big can of worms, I think, for for the Justice Department or for courts that are trying to evaluate speech or debate claims. It's probably good for Congress because it makes it harder for anyone to get information from them. So I want to ask one last question on this before we turn to Peter Nabarro. And that has to do with what this might mean for the January 6th investigation. At this point, I believe, uh, Mike, you should correct me if I'm wrong, that Representative Perry's phone was seized in the spring of last year. We've now been waiting for quite some time uh, for the Justice Department to get a crack at it. In fact, I think that the phone was actually seized even before uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith was appointed. That's so right. So it's, it's been a while. So Eric, I'll turn to you first on this. Um, and Mike, I'm certainly curious if you have any thoughts about you know what the DC Circuit ruling here means in terms of the special counsel's office, uh, their investigative ability to pursue the investigation. Could you see this potentially being a significant problem, um, assuming that you know they're they're still potentially looking into what's going on here, or is the fact that you know at this point President Trump has been indicted? You know the the case is before Judge Chutkin in the in the D.C. District Court. Um, that all this is essentially moot by now, anyway. It's really hard to know. Uh, to, I think it, it 
if the special counsel has no intention of indicting anyone beyond President Trump, it's former President Trump, then it would seem rather unlikely that this would be anything more than a drop in the bucket. Of course, I can't say there was any security, uh, not knowing what the contents of the, of the texts are. But if he were interested in possibly uh, prosecuting Jeffrey Clark, who I believe is a is a unnamed co-conspirator, then this could be important information. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I think that, as I mentioned before, I think it this allows the special counsel to get the the information that it probably most is interested in, that is the communications with the executive branch, which would cover presumably anything related to Jeffrey Clark, to the extent that they're still conducting a more broad range inquiry into either Perry himself or other members of Congress, I think it will make it more difficult and it'll make it more difficult for any future Justice Department investigations relating to members of Congress, period. Although, Mike, what if, what if like, Jeffrey Clark has text with Perry about, you know, Clark is saying, look, the Italians uh, had a satellite that stole votes in Pennsylvania or whatever, and Perry's like, huh, this is interesting stuff, and tell me more. Wouldn't that possibly be a legislative act on Representative Perry's part if he was gathering the information to inform his vote? Conceivably, yeah. I think so. What the court, the DC Circuit said was that, and it was very much of an aside. So, so Judge Howell had basically said all of the communications with the executive branch were unprotected because they weren't information gathering at all. They were basically cajoling the executive branch to do things that Perry wanted them to do. Uh, and the DC Circuit. I think agreed with that. So to the extent there are other communications with Clark or anyone else who might be associated with the executive branch that would fall more into this information gathering category, that could be, that then goes in with all the other information gathering communications as a open issue about how how is supposed to uh, decide that. So potentially it could be protected, but the sense one gets from Judge Howell's opinion and then from the DC Circuit's discussion of it is that they those are the executive branch communications are outside the information gathering bucket entirely. Although but though that, that was specifically remanded, right? To Judge Howell, on page two, the court writes, with respect to Perry's communications with executive branch officials and others outside of Congress, we remand for the district court to apply the standard from the Gravel case on a communication-by-communication basis. Right. But based on what the court said, it seems as if Howell's rationale for for not protecting the communications with the executive branch would stand. But as you said, if there's some that could fall within this information gathering category, you know, that could be an issue. Yeah. If it was, if it was, as you say, if it was just cajoling the executive branch, if it was not, if it was information outbound requests rather than taking in information on Perry's part, that it would not be protected. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So I want to take us now to another January 6th uh, related case, which is uh, involves Peter Navarro, who was cited by the House for contempt for not complying with the subpoena from the January 6th committee. Um, he and Steve Bannon were both prosecuted for contempt. Um, they were both convicted. Um, is there anything new that we should take away from uh, Navarro's case that's different than what we learned from the Bannon prosecution? Eric, maybe I'll start with you. <laughs> well, Navarro is seems to be someone who has a a great interest in losing his freedom and wants to see the the, the confines of a federal uh, detention facility. Unlike Steve Bannon, he does not have an argument on appeal that he relied on advice of counsel. Bannon had that argument. The judge in his case, Judge Nichols, uh, concluded that it was it was barred by controlling uh, D.C. Circuit case law, but he let Bannon remain free on appeal in order to pursue that appeal. Peter Navarro has uh, no such argument, and he had very little arguments of any sort. So I would be surprised if. Uh, judge the judge in his case, Judge Meta, uh, allows him to allows Navarro to remain free on appeal. Uh, Bannon was sentenced to four months and uh, given a absurdly low six thousand dollar fine. It'd be interesting to see uh, what Navarro gets sentenced to. Uh, the facts are the same in terms of that they both really had no excuse to not to show up. Unlike uh, Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino who were the other two Trump officials who the House held in contempt for not cooperating with the subpoenas issued to them by the January 6th committee. Neither Navarro nor Bannon received letters from uh, Trump instructing them to, invoking executive privilege and instructing them not to testify. Now, there is some question as to whether that would suffice because Trump was a former president and the incumbent president, President Biden, uh, concluded that uh, it was not in the interests of the United States uh, to invoke executive privilege for their cases. Uh, Navarro argued, Navarro has the, I think, uh, perhaps the unique distinction in recent times of having blown off two entirely separate Congressional committees. He was also he also blew off a special committee uh, created to investigate the administration's response to the coronavirus, and he blew them off as well. And he he was not held in contempt for that. Uh, he sent in, in his arguments before Judge Meta. He pointed to a a Truth Social post where 
Trump was ranting about the coronavirus committee and says, I'm telling Peter Navarro not to cooperate with them. Words to that effect. And Judge Mehta looked at that and, and pointed out very reasonably that that says nothing about the subsequent subpoena from the January 6th uh, committee. And the, the jury did not uh, waste that much time in, in finding him guilty. So when I calculated how long uh, it took between when Navarro was cited by the House and when the guilty verdict came down, I'm going to say it was something like Quinta might remember because I told her like 459 days. I think it was 456 days. 456 days. Thank you. He will not be sentenced until January, uh, which is to me just another reminder of how slowly these cases can proceed. Mike, I know you've sort of thought a lot about this. Is there anything we should take away from this case that might shape the House's interest in using its contempt tools in the future? Well, I mean, just the fact that there have been convictions. I mean, remember, no one had been convicted for contempt of Congress before Bannon and Navarro since the 1970s. So I think that even though if one follows these cases in detail, you realize how narrow the path is to try to indict and convict an executive branch person, or in Bannon's case, a hanger-on, I guess. The fact is they still, they did get convictions, and assuming that they are upheld on appeal, I would think that people will think a little bit harder before ignoring congressional subpoenas. But certainly the fact that Meadows and Scavino were not prosecuted shows how little one actually has to do to escape prosecution for if you're an executive branch official for contempt of Congress. So speaking of executive branch officials and congressional investigations, let's talk about Molly's favorite uh, subject, impeachment. What is actually happening right now with the Biden impeachment? I guess before before we begin, I should say this is very much an impeachment inquiry in search of a reason to have an impeachment inquiry. The Republicans investigating, I think it's fair to say, have done quite little to justify the investigation. And so I certainly don't want to uh, suggest any substantive comparison between this and the two Trump impeachments. Uh, which for which there was plenty of evidence. So what is actually happening right now? Where is the House in terms of where things stand? Mike, let me start with you. So I guess I'm going to start by taking a little bit of issue with what you just said with regard to whether there is enough evidence to justify an investigation. I think there, there. This is pretty much of a standard. If you look at the issues that they're looking at, this is pretty much of a standard congressional oversight investigation. I'm not going to go through all the evidence in detail, but there was evidence that the president's son was engaged in influence peddling with foreign uh, clients and receiving millions of dollars. Apparently, for the sole purpose of whatever influence he could 
used with his respect to his father and really very little else is claimed for why he was getting this money, I think that's more than enough to justify a congressional investigation. Now, whether it should be an impeachment inquiry or not, and what the line should be in that is, I think, a more difficult issue. What we have here, and I think this is in many ways analogous to the first Trump impeachment, is we have a situation where you have a lot of members in the House who would like to have this be called an impeachment inquiry for reasons that don't have a lot to do with anything other than the PR of it. And there's a reluctance on the part or an inability on the part of the leadership to get the full House to vote for that. And so what they've decided to do is declare an impeachment inquiry without actually having a formal vote. I think that raises two questions. One is, is the investigation itself and any subpoenas that they may issue, are those valid without a formal House vote on the matter? And the second question would get to what would be the legal impact of this being termed an impeachment inquiry as opposed to just a standard oversight inquiry. So that's that's what I think the principal issues are. My view is with respect to the first question that most likely this is a valid investigation and they can validly issue subpoenas, although they'll I think they're wise to do it in a way that will preserve their right to also rely on the fact that it is an oversight investigation as well in order to in order to protect the validity of their actions but i think the the strongest answer is that yes this is a valid inquiry whether the fact you call it an impeachment inquiry or not uh matters is a different question that we can get to yeah, so let's um, let's go there now um, because in 2019, Mike, you um, and I also um, separately wrote about this one aspect of this question, which involves kind of what investigative powers come from a resolution adopted by the House authorizing an impeachment inquiry that House committees don't already have. Um, so that's sort of one piece of this question, the sort of does it matter if you call it an impeachment inquiry question. So um, I'd be curious to hear uh, both of your thoughts on that. And then we can also talk about sort of what has happened since then, particularly related to um, the Office of Legal Counsel. So um, maybe, Mike, I'll come back to you and then to Eric about kind of your your views as an investigative matter, how important is it? What powers would an authorizing resolution really give the committees? Um, In this case, it's largely the um, House Oversight Committee that's been doing most of this work. What powers would it potentially get from a resolution that it doesn't already have? Right. So back in 2019, when we were first discussing this issue, or maybe even earlier than that, I guess early 2019, I think I, I wrote a piece basically talking about the um, potential advantages that a formal impeachment inquiry would give the House. Some of those have been somewhat reduced by the fact that the executive branch 
in the Trump administration, and I suspect will in will continue in the Biden administration, has said that we're not really recognizing a difference between impeachment and regular oversight with respect to things like absolute immunity, executive privilege, uh, whether agency counsel are required to be able to attend uh, congressional depositions. These are all legal positions that the executive branch had taken in the oversight context. But when the House declared uh, that there was an impeachment inquiry in 2019, OLC said, well, we're still taking the same position, basically, uh, on those issues. So potentially, there could still be a difference if it ever gets to enforcement in court. But the some of the advantages are attenuated by the positions that the executive branch has taken. I think there's still some areas where it clearly would be an advantage to the House for it to be considered an impeachment inquiry, whatever that means. Uh, So, for example, if they wanted to get grand jury material, as they did in 2019, uh, having it be an impeachment inquiry would be significant uh, because then you can argue that the exception for uh, judicial proceedings, the exception to grant the secrecy of a grand jury material can apply because a impeachment proceeding is a is a quasi-judicial proceeding. Uh, so that so that will help you in that area. I think another important and probably more significant area that it could help the House is with respect to subpoenas that raise the Mazars issues. So if everyone recalls, Mazars was a case, again, coming out of the Trump administration, where the House, in a non-impeachment context, was seeking to get Trump's personal financial records. And the Supreme Court held that there was a higher standard uh, that applied to trying to get those kinds of records. Part of the rationale of that was that for legislative oversight, you don't really need to get uh, the kind of specific factual information that you need in a judicial proceeding. And that would be different. uh, That would arguably be distinguishable if you're in an impeachment inquiry, because obviously an impeachment inquiry is designed to discover and determine certain specific facts, not just about getting using a case study for general legislation. It is uh, depends on resolving particular factual events, very similar to a judicial proceeding. And so that, I think, is a potential difference that could be important. Uh, and whether or not a court would look at this, you know, informal impeachment inquiry, if we can call it that, as having that advantage, I think is, is I, I really don't, I really don't know the answer to that. I think it's safe to say that the House would be better off if it had a formal vote, uh, but whether or not it could, you know, get a better Mazars standard in this context, I think is hard to say. Yeah, Eric, I'm curious for your thoughts as well. I uh, agree with Mike uh, in general on that. I just want to back up and explain a little bit about how we got here, uh, just somewhat politically, but also interesting how the 
the sides may may or may not flip in, in, in some ways. So Speaker McCarthy announced by himself that the House had opened an impeachment inquiry. And this was just some number of days after he said he wouldn't do that without a full vote of the House. And indeed, in 2019, he had criticized Speaker Pelosi for doing just that, for announcing an impeachment inquiry unilaterally without a House vote. Uh, so McCarthy tried to be consistent. Uh, it's always good to be that way if you can, but his moderates wouldn't give him the votes. And his right flank was demanding that he do something, so he wound up doing the very thing that he had criticized Pelosi for. Now, the House under Pelosi did, in fact, vote to open an impeachment inquiry, I believe a month and a week after Speaker Pelosi had made her unilateral announcement. So so the issue became a little bit moot, but it seems unlikely, based upon the politics, that McCarthy will be able to, anytime soon, can get a majority to vote for an impeachment inquiry. Now, the executive branch has taken the position that impeachment inquiry is invalid unless there's a House vote. And this was expressed most recently by OLC in January 2020, which said that the House's impeachment inquiry was not properly constituted, and that any subpoenas issued pursuant to that impeachment inquiry before the House vote were null and, vo- were null and void. And OLC also said, well, you know, the House vote could have ratified the earlier subpoenas and made them valid, but the way it was worded, it didn't, it didn't do so. So, I mean, I, I agree with with the the various uh, with with Mike's analysis. I, mean, I think there is, and I think there is some possibility that if they get if it gets litigated over executive privilege, there could be some benefit to being in an impeachment inquiry. Now, as far as I know, I think there's only one case, and it's a, a very recent case that discusses whether what Speaker McCarthy did is enough to launch an impeachment inquiry. And this came up when the House was conducting, when the House under Speaker Pelosi was trying to get redacted portions of the Mueller report, portions that had been redacted because they were grand jury materials. And they made, I think it's technically called an application for that to the chief judge of the district court in DC, who at the time was the very same Judge Howell, who we discussed earlier. And she held that there need not be a formal formal vote in order to open an impeachment inquiry. I have no idea who's right between her and Speaker Pelosi and the new McCarthy position on the one hand and the position of OLC on the other hand. Both, both Judge Howell and OLC go through all kinds of history uh, in discussing uh, their opposing positions. So if I can jump in and take this opportunity to, to launch a vicious attack on OLC. So yeah, I'd like to go back to 2019. They, uh, as you may recall, the Ukraine scandal broke in August of, of that year. And a couple weeks later, uh, Speaker Pelosi announced that there would be a impeachment inquiry related to that matter without having a vote. I think, and certainly she was uh, criticized for that. Actually, if you look at what McCarthy said, he didn't actually say 
and he may have said this somewhere, but in the letter that he wrote in early October 2019, he actually didn't say that she uh, had to have a formal vote. She, He actually was sort of vague on this, but my reading of it was he wanted to know whether she was going to have a formal vote, but he didn't actually want her to do that. What he did ask was for there to be procedures in place to protect the president's due process rights. What, what, what really happened was that on October 8th, the White House counsel sent a letter to the House, Speaker Pelosi and the committee chairs who were involved, basically saying, we're not going to cooperate at all with the, your investigation. And they gave, it gave a number of reasons, one of which was that there was not a, a formal House vote taken, although it was pretty clear from the letter that he wasn't going to cooperate regardless. But interestingly enough, he did not claim that he had any advice from OLC on the matter. And throughout October, there are a number of letters from different departments saying we're not going to respond or we're not going to comply with your subpoena because we've been told uh, the White House isn't you know, has told us that we're not supposed to, and that there's, this is not a valid impeachment inquiry. But none of them, either cite OLC, is giving them that advice. Fast forward to January of 2020, and OLC comes out with this formal memo in the impeachment trial, in which they say that the impeachment inquiry was invalid, and therefore the subpoenas were invalid. And they say that they gave that uh, verbal advice in October. They don't say exactly when, but they say it was sometime uh, at several places. They imply it was sometime prior to the House taking the formal impeachment vote, which was on October 31. So sometime in October, allegedly, OLC gave this advice, even though it seems pretty clear to me that the White House went and did this without relying on any advice from LC, uh, I have filed a FOIA request to try to get information to find out when this advice was actually given. And so far, I've been unsuccessful in, in finding out if and when OLC actually gave the advice verbally. However, on the sort of legal issue, OLC's legal analysis, I agree you can argue it either way uh, on whether an impeachment inquiry needs to be formally authorized. But there was one part of the opinion that I thought was just completely ridiculous, which is they said that even though the House's uh, subpoenas had also cited their oversight authority, uh, they still shouldn't be considered valid because even though, yes, they could have done this as an oversight inquiry, it was clear that the real purpose of the investigation was impeachment and therefore that somehow made it invalid to conduct this investigation at all. And it seems to me that part of the opinion is completely ridiculous. And I would be, I wonder whether the Biden administration will even follow that because in part, OLC was relying on the memo that they wrote regarding President Trump's tax returns. And I believe the Biden administration actually withdrew that 
opinion because it was based on this idea that the executive branch can sort of second guess what the congressional purpose is behind an investigation, which is the same, essentially the same thing OLC was saying in that uh, January 2020 memo. So it's it seems to me that if the House does go forward with this impeachment inquiry and issue subpoenas, if they rely on both their oversight and impeachment authorities, I think maybe the Biden administration will find it difficult to just say these are invalid, but we'll see. So I want to leave us a little bit of time to talk about a new arising uh, matter. Uh, So far, we've talked about a number of cases involving things happening in the past, um, but I want to touch briefly on Senator Bob Menendez, who has been indicted for, uh, as the charges allege, um, accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes in exchange for trying to advance Egyptian interests um, in the United States. By my last check, about 30 Democratic senators had come out saying that he should step down, uh, but that's not enough. Um, So Eric, we'll turn to you to ask a little bit about what are the Senate's actual options for getting rid of Menendez? What are his options for fighting that effort? And how has the Senate dealt with members experiencing uh, these kinds of troubles in the past? Either House can expel uh, a member by a two-thirds vote. And that's obviously a lot. And it requires in a divided Senate uh, substantial uh, support by members of both parties. And I would note that at last check, uh, the you said around 30 Democrat, Democratic senators have called on Menendez to resign. I believe the number of Republican senators as of yesterday was zero. So it seems at this point unlikely that he would be expelled. If something changes, the uh, Senate can pretty much handle it the way under I think the way one would interpret current case law, the Senate can pretty much handle it the way that it wants. I think what typically happens is that they refer to the an ethics committee, which conducts investigation and then concludes, makes a recommendation that the full Senate can either accept or reject. Senator Packwood in 1995 was, was there was a, a referral to the ethics committee due to charges of, of, of sexual harassment and also by trying to extract uh, financial favors from people who had interest in, in specific issues of legislation. And there was a recommendation that he be expelled, actually, but he mooted that by, by resigning. Before that, in 1982, there was there was a, a member of Congress from from guess what state, Quinta? Was it the great state of New Jersey? It was the your, the great state, your home state of New Jersey. It's part of it's part of our culture. Named Harrison Williams, a Democrat who was uh, convicted for taking bribes in what was known as the Abscam case, and he stayed on uh, through his conviction. The the Ethics Committee, not surprisingly, recommended that he be expelled, and prior to his Senate vote, uh, he resigned. And, and, and before that, you've got to go back, I think, uh, to like the 1920s to find someone who even resigned uh, in, in, in following an investigation by the Ethics Committee. So it, it seems that Menendez is likely to hang on uh, if he if he wants to, and 
to either decide to face the voters or to retire on his own terms. Mike, is there anything you'd want to add to that? Only that I think, I mean, technically, the Senate could vote to expel him without holding like a hearing or anything. But as Eric indicated, that would be completely contrary to any kind of precedent. So I think he's entitled to uh, investigation and a hearing, and presumably that would happen before the Ethics Committee. Normally, the Ethics Committee waits when there's a parallel criminal investigation and waits to, to see what the outcome is. But what the Senate could do is say, no, we don't want to do that in this case. We can, we're going to investigate. And uh, if that's you know, a problem for Senator Menendez because you know, it interferes with his ability, or the Justice Department, for that matter, it interferes with their ability to prepare for their criminal trial, that's too bad. We have an independent constitutional obligation here. And so we're going to go forward with the ethics proceeding. That I think they have the perfect power to do. And that's presumably if they want to do something, that's what they would do. All right, let's leave it there. Mike and Eric, thank you for uh, joining for our quick overview of the many, many things that are happening in Congress. And we didn't even talk about the potential shutdown. (laughs) Good, because I don't know anything about that. (laughs) All right. Thank you again. Thanks very much. Thanks, Thanks, Quinta. Thanks, Molly. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noah Mosband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.